0: So you got less than half of what kids are getting today. And the fact that they've added the COVID shot, I can't even call it a vaccine, to this childhood schedule starting at six months is is simply criminal. Uh, you You did not get that hepatitis B dose at birth two months and six months. That's huge because that in and of itself is so, so damaging. Hepatitis A, depending on where you were in the country, you probably didn't get that. And as a male... When you came through the system, you probably didn't get the HPV.
1: I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Mark Grove. Hi, this is Kimberly Ann Johnson, and you're listening to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. Welcome back to the show, my party podcast people. Maybe you're party people. I don't know. It's hard to party as an adult nowadays, but you know, we still party sometimes. Halloween is approaching at the time of this recording, and uh, we are ready. We're gonna, I was just at a play last night. Um, We just went to the farmer's market today, dressed in our uh, family of monarch. (laughs) halloween costumes Um, we've got different costumes for every event and we just keep reusing the same costumes because they're fun we've got banana costumes that we had taken to burning man as a family that was the year that we took little girls to burning man like idiots and it was a crash and burn event for everybody but we did get to go out and pass bananas out on the playa in our uh, our whole outfit family outfitted as bananas um, passing out bananas that were smashed and sometimes rotting and Whatever, but some of those people that were still coming off their LSD trip from the uh, previous night, they really appreciated that little boost of potassium in the morning. Um, and then we've got a baby mouse, and we've got a probably some variation of a unicorn princess horrific jack o' lantern thing for my Todd, my 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 child, my almost four year old. God, she almost four. Damn, that's crazy. Um, so we've got a two-year-old mouse, a four-year-old thingamajig, and then, um, I'm going to go, well, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to go as yet. I was thinking about Woody from Toy Story, and I don't think my wife has fully decided, but yeah, we're going to take the kids trick-or-treating and dress up and all of that. And, and, and these kids, like they are everything to me. They are, um, they are. Uh, It sounds cliche, but it's like, what was my life all about before these little kids? And if you're not a parent yet, many of you are, I'm sure. But if you're not a parent yet, or maybe you're on that journey or whatever, of course, you can reach out to me if you need help. It's BelovedHolistics.com. But when you become a parent, everything changes because now you're not just responsible for having rock hard abs and having a morning ritual where you mix your, your... Um, special cacao with your hot water. And and then you like to give it a little foaming um, action with your zuzzer. And then you sit and you meditate for 43 hours straight. Like That no longer is my life. Instead, I'm waking up. Hopefully, I've gotten enough sleep. I aim for like eight to nine hours of sleep a night, believe it or not. And um, we usually get that. We usually get really, really good sleep. But you know, regardless, you wake up and you, you're you're usually waking up to mama, I'm awake, or just somebody screaming, sort of haphazardly about seemingly nothing. But for little kids, sometimes those seemingly nothing things to us are actually a big deal. And so you get up and you get them out and you change a diaper or two and you help the the four year old get on the toilet. And you know she doesn't have her legs closed, so she pees on the carpet. And you know it's a lot of it's a lot of work. But then your two-year-old wants to put on her Halloween mask while she's eating breakfast. And we've had to eliminate some foods because she's got this diarrhea thing. By the way, we I just got the stool analysis results back. She has a blastocystis infection. This has been like a chronic diarrheal issue for months now and I haven't been able to kick it. So if anybody has any insights into how to treat blastocystis um, that's causing chronic diarrhea in a two-year-old um, in the most non-pharmaceutical means possible. Like I'm, I'm willing to go the flagell route in case you're mm-hmm. thinking that. But man, it'd be nice to not have to give her a, a, a dose of antibiotics. And, and now I'm wondering, do we all need to take this? Do we all have this little parasite living in us? But anyways, she e- is eating like her cottage cheese or like leftovers from last night's dinner. And she's wearing this mask and is just housing this food. And it's the most ridiculous but silly thing. And you never ever get the pleasure of doing that until you're a parent. And it's not for everybody but it is for me and i've got so i've got these two beautiful little girls and i wonder every single day am i doing the right thing like am i doing my best to raise them fortunately Due to my experiences within the conventional medical model, we didn't even choose to go the pediatrician route. I've got enough pediatrician friends. Um, shout out to Alexander Geisler, pediatrician in LA, one of my buddies from residency. I call him up all the time and I'm like, man, I've got this issue. And he's like, ah, I wouldn't be worried. Or you sure you don't want to go to a doctor? And I'm like, let me try this out first. you know. And the, the big reason that we chose that approach is because every time we went to a pediatrician's clinic with our first penny, they wanted to give her immunizations. They wanted to give her all of these many, many, many doses of vaccines. And that almost seemed like the only reason to be going there. Yes. Of course, if there's like, uh, some sort of heart defect or she's not urinating or she's in an accident, like, yeah, there's great reasons to have clinics and hospitals, but I didn't see much benefit going there because I could do a lot of the stuff that they were talking about anyways, even though I'm not a pediatrician, like she's meeting milestones, she's talking, she's walking, she's moving, she's, articulating. She's putting words and sentences and paragraphs together. Um, She knows her numbers. Like she's doing all the things. So why would I go to the pediatrician? And this conversation on immunizations hasn't always been sort of the thing that I do except when I had kids. And then I had to really start becoming curious about this. And of course we had both of our kids during COVID. And of course I was going very, very deep into that literature because I was being told by ACOG that we need to immunize every single pregnant woman with this new COVID vaccine. But there wasn't any safety data um, available. There was one study that's still on the CDC website. It's still what ACOG you know, pulls from. And it was not a well done study. It's the Shimbakuro study or whatever that was published in the New England Journal. But anyways, like that, a part of that was like, I'm supposed to be recommending this universally to a pregnant woman. Like her body is a temple. She's growing this baby after three um, efforts with IVF. Like, are we really going to be putting this thing in there without knowing for sure if it's safe? It's not even a true vaccine. It's a biological device. And um, that got me deep into this vaccine conversation. So while I am not anti-vaccine, I am very thoughtful about everything that goes in my kids' bodies from like Artificial food colorings to candy to processed foods to seed oils to like where is our dairy coming from where is our meat coming from why wouldn't it, why would vaccines or medications be any exception hence my sort of debate around treating blastocystis you know full bore flagell or something like that so my guest today is a pediatrician and he's a and a very well experienced pediatrician um, Paul Thomas has pra- had been practicing in Oregon for years um he was kind of like my go-to uh, sort of i i don't know mentor from afar it was a, it was not early in my in my time um as a doctor that i met him but i'd heard his name around you know here and there and, and i was like gosh this is um a guy who kind of thinks like me and um he has this like this like really busy pediatric pediatrics practice up in Oregon and he had developed a book that somebody had sent me. In fact, his co-author, Jennifer Jennifer Margulis, and the book I'm talking about is called The Vaccine Friendly Plan. She had sent me a copy of her book and I was like, this is great. It was on the shelf. We used it. Um, And then of course, when we decided no more vaccines, uh, it it remained on my shelf, but I kept pulling it off to, you know, to refer for my client, my, my clients and uh, my family. And, um, and uh, the midwives with whom I collaborate. And I was like, gosh, this guy and this woman, they wrote this great book. And it wasn't until later that I met Paul. And now he's retired. But at the time that he was still practicing, he was under constantly under scrutiny about how he was counseling and speaking about vaccines publicly. And he will tell you in the show, he is not an anti-vaxxer. This term is used as a bypass for a real conversation. Instead, he's, he, he argues like, oh, this is a brilliant technology, but the way that the FDA and a lot of these pharmaceutical companies are releasing these products is not honest and potentially nefarious um, at worst. So Paul has published a number of papers on the potential downsides of the aluminum adjuvants that are in many of our vaccines. He, like me, had his ears perked up with the hepatitis B vaccine, day one of life, that is now universal, uh, universally recommended in hospitals around the United States and in many hospitals outside of the country. And you know, despite his best efforts in publishing giant studies, like he had one paper that was actually, uh, was actually he was forced to retract it. And um, meanwhile, he had the benefit of looking at a giant practice of children and their families and looking at children who were completely unvaccinated as well as children who had a modified vaccine schedule versus the typical, what is now 72 doses from day one of life all the way until you're 18. And he was able to look at this and see what were the long-term health consequences of these various schedules. And I'll let him share in the episode what he found, but I don't think it would be much of a surprise to many of you that he found that the unvaccinated kids were actually doing far better. And there was some bias there. Unvaccinated children born to... Mothers and fathers who are thoughtful about these things are also, like me, not frequenting the pediatrician's clinic as frequently. So that doesn't mean that they're not sick. It's mean it doesn't mean that they that they um, are were missed in some of the adverse you know events or consequences of not being vaccinated. It means that they weren't getting sick. They didn't have reasons to go to the pediatrician. So just like any doctor, why go to a doctor if you don't have a reason to be treated if you're not sick? So. Um, let this conversation be a an open dialogue for yourself in your family. I think Paul brings a lot to the table. And I hope that you will um support his work. Paul does have a podcast of his own. It's called With the Wind. You can find his Substack, which I recently subscribed to because it's amazing. He is just putting out information in order for you to make an informed decision. You can find his work, um, including his his substack at doctorsandscience.com. He also has a coaching practice now. He's not practicing medicine. He's coaching uh, women in their family, uh, I should say children in their families at Kids first number forever, um, His book, as I've mentioned, is The Vaccine Friendly Plan, co-authored with Jennifer Margulis and um, we're also going to link a couple of the big studies that he's put out there around the uh, potential downsides of having um, a ton of aluminum being introduced into a child's body through injection over their adolescent um, lifetime and um, some of the potential downsides that may come with that so Without further ado, well, actually, there's one more thing. With before I say that, we do have one sponsor that is going to be the ongoing sponsor for every episode going forward, at least for the foreseeable future. I have parted ways with a lot of other companies, not because I don't want them, but because I'm tired of reading ads. So, um, the. The company that I've I've kept on is Immune Intel HCC. This is active hexose correlated compound. It is a cultured whole food made from the mycelia of shiitake mushrooms. Um, numerous um, in vitro and in vivo trials have demonstrated that helps to clear persistent HPV. This is something near and dear to me because, of course, the, one of the topics that Paul and I get to, into is the Gardasil nine vaccine, which is the only FDA approved vaccine against quote cervical cancer. We get into some of the issues with that um, on this show as well as on Paul's podcast, where he had me, um, he graciously welcomed me as a guest as well to talk about some of these things. And of course, this is this Immune Intel HCC is a mainstay of the therapy and coaching that I provide my clients who come to me with persistent HPV. They come to me with abnormal paps, and they're told that they're going to die of cervical cancer unless they get a chunk of their cervix lopped off, which of course has pregnancy con- you know, considerations. Um, you get scar tissue where we lop off a chunk of your cervix, and sometimes that scar tissue doesn't um, gradually dilate the way that we would like it to in in childbirth, um, leading to tearing, leading to dystocias, all sorts of things. Um, But also, it's it's important to consider that even without this vaccine, it takes years to decades in order for you to develop cervical cancer. So one of the um, products that I recommend clients start taking is this Immune Intel HCC. And while we don't have any large population-based or generalizable population-based studies, they are in phase two trials looking at this. Supplement specifically and in isolation as a means of helping to reverse some of these abnormal tests and get your immune system back in order. Immune Intel works by upping the number of T cells and NK cells that are operating, in order to scavenge precancerous cells, in order to help um, integrate the message of viruses. Um, the immune system does so many beautiful things, and if it's not working up to snuff, you're you're going to be at um, risk for a variety of chronic illnesses, including cancers, including um, issues with the common cold and everything in between. So, um, Immune Intel HCC. If you want to try their product, go to the medicine. That's medicine without the e. T H E M E D I C I N dot com slash products. Use code beloved ten. You'll save ten percent. And if you're interested in this topic around Gardasil and vaccines and in the immune system and and this maybe demystifying the cervical cancer screening process, don't be afraid. There's there's are plenty of resources out there, and one incredible resource that I'm now um, I've now um, brought to you um, as a means of forward-facing public education is clear and free. If you if you want to check out what Mimi, the the creator of Immunitello, um, she and I have put together, it's. Um, you can find all of the details, join the waitlist. just get us on a call, we'll enroll you right there on the spot, clearhpv.com is the website for that. And very much in the same nature as the Born Free Method, which we'll be relaunching in January. You can, um, you can count on 90 very, very high quality lessons, a ton of citations. We've put so much effort and time and resources into making this program as accessible to everybody as possible. And um, you get six months of coaching with me and Mimi, Anybody in any of my programs can get me on the phone. I don't know when the last time is a doctor told you, hey, just give me a call, here's my cell phone number. But anybody in my programs has access to me in that way. The reason I do these programs is because I don't have the ability to see every single person who's coming through the doors. I get about 10 DMs per day. I get a bunch of form submissions, people buying consults left and right. I've had to close that Mm -hmm. off for now. Because it's overwhelming me so now i have a program that i can just direct people to and if they need additional support you can always book a consult but if you're in the program you basically get that for free so clearhbv.com if you want to check that out immune Intel hcc that's again the medicine without the e.com slash products code beloved 10. To get 10% off your purchase, join their subscription plan, guys. I take a bottle of this every four months because I just know it's good for me. Because I'm overworked, sometimes I'm underslept, and sometimes my I travel and my my diurnal rhythms are off, my adrenals are off, my nutrition is off. All of that is a part of just being an adult. And if you need some extra boost um, to your immune system and how those immune cells are are communicating with one another, Immune Intel HCC is definitely a part of that program. All right, now. Without further ado, here's my conversation with the lovely, incredible pediatrician, retired pediatrician, technically, Paul Thomas, MD. Hey, Paul, it's good to see you again. Hey, good to see you too, Nathan. I'm I'm glad to see that retired pediatrician there. You've you've finally been able to break <laughs> through completely, and we can finally talk about all the things that I've always loved, you know, really appreciated you for. I highlight your work in every one of my projects because you're the real deal. You're like a doctor just like me. You've gone through your career, and I know you've had some issues with medical boards and all of that. I don't think any of us who are really doing this type of work have... Have been completely immune to that, and uh, so I'm happy that we can kind of just be i don't know just be frank with one another and to to really kind of clarify from your you know worldly experience as a pediatrician um. Maybe answer some of the common questions that people have about not just vaccines, but also like childhood development and like what you've sort of seen as a pediatrician. So, um, so first off, how are you doing today? I heard Didi's voice in the back there. So, you guys, you guys have a busy day ahead of you, I think.
0: Yeah, we we always do. Uh, it's it's a good day, and it's always great to be chatting with you and uh, kind of getting into the nuts and bolts, the the meat of what's going on in our world, especially around this whole issue of childhood vaccination.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of like one of those purple elephants in the room every time I'm in any room where like people don't want to talk about it, but everybody's thinking about it. And so, you know, for me, I'll probably end up in jail someday. I mean, knock on wood, but it's just like, like I've got, I'm licensed in like 26 States now. And at some point, yeah at some point the dominoes might fall but in the meantime i have to keep doing the stuff that i think is most important to people and frankly paul i'll start this off uh, and by the way for those listening um i'm going to be playing devil's advocate in this conversation for the most part i'm going to be asking from through the lens of of where i was back in let's say medical school um where you know andrew wakefield's papers were being retracted and all this and you know there was these connections to autism that my mentors and my instructors were telling me is complete nonsense and maybe it maybe it is nonsense but since then, <laughs> you're shaking your head. If you guys aren't watching, there's also a YouTube channel. Go to go to YouTube and you'll you will we will link it in this description. But Paul is giving me all the subtle nonverbal language of how he feels about these things. Um, you know, I, I, let, let me start just by saying that as a physician, I think we're kind of raised, we're bred to to really have a full trust in pharmaceutical companies, in pharmacology, in surgery in my world. And I have obviously since people, you know, people who know me realize that I have not turn my back on that, but it's like, hey, there's a time and place for some of these things. But in general, this being our default system that we were bred into, your your practice, the practice of medicine tells you otherwise. Like there's a lot of of uh fuc- fuc- curry afoot, let's just say. And if COVID didn't teach us anything, it taught us that the pharmaceutical companies are not necessarily out, you know, just to support the people and do good out there. So <laughs> So why don't we, uh, let's start with this, like, Paul, what's wrong with, like, you know, I got vaccines, what's 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 wrong with vaccines? I seem like I'm at least a reasonably put together guy, you know, what, what should I, I got two little girls now, like, why wouldn't I get them vaccine, you know, all these vaccines? Uh,
0: we have a channel, we have a real challenge with stuff going up on YouTube, so we might have to... We'll put
1: this one on Rumble. We'll put this one on Rumble. Perfect. For those Perfect. listening, uh, a little correction here. We're going to put this one on Rumble.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. I, I, uh, yeah. I have a big YouTube channel and um, yeah. She's not allowed to talk about vaccines.
1: I I can't talk about vaccines on that channel, or the whole thing comes down. Me (laughs) neither. Yeah, (laughs) that's a really good point. YouTube is, we will not, you will not find us on YouTube. We'll put a link to the Rumble, uh, the Rumble here. Perfect. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And folks, that just speaks to the fact that there's major censorship going on on many many platforms. Um, So, yeah. So, you, as I, we both were following the CDC's vaccine schedule for ourselves, and I followed it for my own children. I had not yet. Um, become aware of all the challenges that we have with vaccines, and we're going to cover some of that, I'm sure, in this discussion. Um, yeah how how do parents today <clears throat> sort through the information that's out there? Because both both sides of should I vaccinate or should I not vaccinate? Are vaccines safe and effective, or are they dangerous and, and largely ineffective? They, they seem like they're opposites, right? Yeah. Then then who's who's telling the truth or, you know, what's (laughs) what's the real deal here? And I think the problem has to do with the nature of captured agencies and the way science is done. Yeah. I don't think there's any problem with science itself. It's it's the questions that are being asked and how the design of the studies are being done. And listeners may have heard of tobacco science. Right. We we used to think. World War One and Two and Korean War, even Vietnam. I mean, soldiers were given cigarettes. This was, you know, your ration. You got food and you got cigarettes because they were completely safe and they were going to help you with your anxiety.
1: Oh, and the Surgeon General was saying, "Hey, there's there's a good brand and you know what was it, Virginia Slims or something, wasn't it? Their, their, their favorite." Marble? Oh yeah, know.
0: doctors <laughs> were promoting cigarettes. They were, they were good, yeah. for, especially for anxiety and and all of that. So, what we found out way later was that there was a lot of corruption of science done by the tobacco industry to just pump out fake studies and, and poorly designed studies that would basically show nothing. Like, you know, if you smoked a pack a day and I smoke two packs a day and we see who dies in a week, neither of us die. So cigarettes are safe.
1: Yeah. Right. And,
0: And so it's all about the study design. And sadly in the vaccine world, every single study has failed to have a proper saline placebo they've failed to ask the right questions, and they've failed to look at all health outcomes long term.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to throw in a little, uh, you know, for those out there that want a very, very clear example, when I was a kid, we did not do hepatitis B vaccines day one of life. I never got hepatitis B until I think I went to like college or something. I I can't even remember, maybe medical school. Honestly, I'm not totally sure. But um, nowadays, when I was in residency, you know, if you do a pediatrician you know, like a ped's rotation as an intern, as an OBGYN resident, and I, um, you know, was still pretty on board with vaccines. Like again, I didn't, f- I don't feel like it harmed me. So why would I not promote this? Like infectious diseases are bad: polio, iron lung, blah blah blah. Like all that stuff that we were conditioned to to sort of uh, th- that was became a conditioning and a a sort of um, foundation of our practice, you know, in medicine. All of that was still there. But then parents were asking me when I was on the PED rotation, should we get the hepatitis B vaccine? And I was like, listen, honestly, of all the vaccines, I'm not exactly sure if I understand that one. And man, Paul, I got chewed out by the attending in front of my entire department. Like they thought I was like the absolute biggest asshole in the world. And I still maintained. And in the middle midst of being yelled at, I was like, but how is a baby going to get hepatitis B? And like it, like shit just hit the roof. So. So when you go onto like the FDA's, you know, if you look at the safety, the safety data sheet, FDA provided this, you just go on Google, search this, Recombivax is the hepatitis B. To your point, if you look at the safety trials, they look for five days for adverse reactions and I think it was 147 participants or something, ages zero to 12. And then they said, Hey, it's safe after five days, no serious adverse reaction. That That's, that's what they, that's what they said. And that was just a little validation not like proof proof is not something that i care about what i what i realized though is my gut was telling me something doesn't smell right here and sure enough even in the safety data provided on the fda's website for the approval of this universal now vaccination we do have we have five days that's all that we're going to say and we're going to say it's safe like so anyways this is not a matter of do we believe in the science or not it's this is crappy science period and until we have better science, I really can't advise you that this is, quote, safe.
0: Right. So Hep B was the absolute last straw for me that woke me up. You're oh, an ob no <laughs> and you realize that ob do a really good job of screening pregnant moms for hepatitis B, rubella, a number of other things.
1: Surface well, antigen is a part of our, like, first prenatal labs. You exactly. HBsAg, yeah.
0: So you already know, and as a pediatrician coming in for a newborn, I already know that that mom who delivered that baby is hepatitis B negative. Right. I mean, the, the rate of hepatitis B positivity in this country, I think, is like 0.1%. And we know who Something they like are. That, They're yeah. high risk, you know, IV drug users, prostitutes, the kind of really risky lifestyle people. But we screen anyway. So... If you're born to a typical mom in the US who's hepatitis B negative, your risk of getting hepatitis B is absolutely zero. Why would you inject 250 micrograms of aluminum? The adult daily max is 50. We're not supposed to exceed three to five micrograms per kilogram, and it has 250 micrograms. You're poisoning that newborn on hour one of birth with their first dose of a three-dose series they're going to get at, again, at one to two months and again at six months, it's horrific. And we now know there are studies showing that newborns, especially males who get the hepatitis B vaccine have a 300 plus percent increase in autism. My own data shows it's definitely linked to autism. It's insanity because there's absolutely zero benefit. And then you remember, if we, as a doctor, if we get a needle stick in the office or in the OR, and you haven't had your last hepatitis B booster in 10 years, what do we have to do? We've got to go get our blood drawn because we might catch hepatitis B from this needle stick, meaning the, the protection only lasts at best 10 years. So right. you're going to inject a baby whose protection will be gone by the time they're a teenager and they might be engaged in risky behavior.
1: Okay. Devil's advocate question. This, we're talking micrograms. We're talking a millionth of a gram. What's the big deal? It's just a little bit of aluminum. What's the big deal? It's just one shot. Why not? Why not get like? What's the harm there?
0: Yeah. So the CDC has done a lot of uh, trickery when it comes to the aluminum issue because they'll say, for example, well, formula has even way more aluminum than the hepatitis B shot, and that's their explanation of why it's okay. But what they're not telling you is that a f- percentage of 0.3%, I think it's 0.1 to 0.3% of ingest, yeah. ingested aluminum actually makes it into the body when you inject it a hundred percent is mainlined into the body. So it's way toxic, The poison it's all about dose. And so what is the effective dose that's reaching that child? The other thing is it's per kilogram, right? So it poisons depend on the weight of the person that's receiving the poison and. When you take a newborn who weighs at most 10 pounds, three, four kilos at most, the FDA's own data showed toxicity when you got above three to five micrograms per kilo. Let's just put it at its worst case scenario, we'll say five is okay, I don't think it is, and you've got a four kilo kid, that's 20 micrograms, but you're injecting 250. So it's simply just because it's micrograms, that's a toxic substance in the microgram range If right. You think of mercury or arsenic there's other toxins that are very toxic at tiny doses
1: yeah all right so orally invested aluminum is not the same you know i had a pediatrician friend who trained with me at kaiser i won't use his name because i don't want him to be embarrassed but he had said what's your big beef with aluminum there's there's aluminum in spinach are you going to tell people not to eat spinach and that's that's what i say right there is like first off we shouldn't have a whole bunch of aluminum in our produce anyways, like our soils are contaminated. I suspect it's being picked up through the roots or through additives to fertilizers or whatever else. But even if it was a naturally occurring substance in spinach, you're not gonna be absorbing that in the same way that injecting it intramuscularly or subcutaneously or or heaven forbid intravenously into a newborn, let alone an adult who probably has you know adequately functioning liver and kidneys and everything else. The, the point here is that um, there are certain substances that have absolutely no role in the body, and even one part per million is not good enough, which is essentially what a, a microgram is by volume. So, um, okay. So let's. Uh, so so how about? So so they used to use mercury thimerosal. I think is was the uh, the additive. Right. Um, now they're using things like in the Gardasil nine vaccine, which is my current uh, sort of soapbox. They're using amorphous hydroxy, what is that? Amorphous aluminum hydroxy sulfate, I believe is what it is. And this is what I suspect. uh, I've looked at the data, but I'll ask you this as well. Um, Instead of me stating it, let me just ask you when you say that these, these biological devices, these vaccines and whatever, are not tested against placebo, what are you talking about? Isn't that a part of the FDA approval process? What is in this placebo if it's not saline? Isn't that what a placebo is? It should be saline. There's no reason it couldn't be
0: saline when you're looking at an injectable product, right? Because the person receiving an injection of a clear fluid is not going to know if that's a vaccine or a, or a saltwater shot, saline shot. That is how the science of vaccines should be done. And it has yet to be done for, I think they had a very tiny group of the HPV, the one you're very familiar with.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a was, tiny group. It was the smallest of all the studies. It was the smallest yeah. of
0: all the groups and they put all the data together to hide the fact that actually that group that got saline did amazingly well. So what they do for the vaccine trials is they will use an older vaccine. Typically older vaccines are actually more dangerous with more side effects. Uh, or at least they're even, because the the older vaccine has everything that's harmful in it, and they'll call that the placebo. And so they're comparing two groups who both got very toxic substances, and let's say 10% in both groups had serious side effects. Well, they'll say, see, they're the same, so therefore it's safe.
1: Right, Right. no difference. It's absolutely
0: (laughs) insane logic. The only way to know if something's safe actually is to have long-term follow-up and this is another thing they never do on these studies look at all health outcomes okay so doctors today are completely unaware of the fact that things like heart disease cancer autoimmune allergies neurodevelopmental issues are very linked to vaccines and they're they're going to go no they're not it's been they're they're shown to be safe and effective and they cling to that safe and effective marketing slogan, there's no such thing as a safe pharmaceutical product. I'm sorry. It's just a matter of how dangerous is it? And the more we start to look and compare vaccinated to unvaccinated populations, the more we realize, oh my, these vaccines are causing tremendous harm.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, Paul, I was born in 1985. I don't have any uh, obvious toxicities, although we don't know what I'm going to be like when I'm 70 years old versus 40 years old. Um, what toxicities are you talking about? Like, I, I'm a pretty healthy guy. In 85, I still got a number of, of, of vaccines. Like, what's the deal with babies now?
0: Yeah. So you got less than half of what kids are getting today. And the fact that they've added the COVID shot, I can't even call it a vaccine, to this childhood schedule starting at six months is is simply criminal. Uh, you, You did not get that hepatitis B dose at birth two months and six months. That's huge because that in and of itself is so, so damaging. Hepatitis A, depending on where you were in the country, you probably didn't get that. And as a male, when you came through the system, you probably didn't get the HPV.
1: Yeah, I was too old. I mean, not right. too old. I it it was introduced. The B one less campaign was introduced in the two thousands, and yep. I was already in college. So I don't I don't think that I ended right. up getting it. it. So, get
0: so Hep B, Hep A, and HPV are all Merck products that have that very special adjuvant that you were mentioning earlier. And I think there's something especially harmful with that adjuvant. I really do. That form of aluminum, I think, is at a smaller nanoparticle size, so it can be incorporated into cells much more readily. And so I think it's especially harmful. That's one reason you're okay. Uh, As you pointed out, we don't know long-term, okay? So my own kids were born kind of your age range, and I honestly don't think they did as well as perhaps you you seem to have done. A lot of anxiety- I seem to of- have
1: done, you know, I'm missing a couple of my toes and uh, I'm-
0: <laughs> Well, you know, this is the thing. Uh, when I looked at the differences between my vaccinated and unvaccinated patients in my practice, the differences are palpable even in infancy. So you, you're a dad. And you've held your babies and looked in their eyes and they look back at you with this, just a alertness and connectedness. I have a term that I, somebody else used. I just loved it when I read it It was like, "Yep, that's it. It's called vaccine eyes as a Mm -hmm. pediatrician who's seen tens of thousands of babies. There's this blank stare and my kids had it. I mean, they literally you would look into their eyes and just peering into their eyes and it's like nobody home okay this vaccine eyes uh that's the first sign of injury and most people don't don't get it the second thing you'll see in infancy is they're not tracking well right so if i move a baby's eyes are going to follow me and they're engaged a lot of the vaccinated kids are no just kidding engaged. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the first thing you lose. And then of course there's more severe neurodevelopmental challenges that can develop. Uh, it can be as mild as just maybe a poor focus and slight anxiety to full fledged nonverbal autism. Right. There's a whole spectrum of neurodevelopmental problems. Oh yeah. And then my data. So if you've got listeners who haven't heard my story very briefly in 2016, I wrote a book, this one here, the vaccine friendly plan and Basically it was, here's a slower way to get protection for the things that you might need protection for. There's some things we know you don't need, like we'd already discussed the Hep B in newborns. You can do that when they're teenagers, if you're gonna do it. Yeah. Well, that was poking the bear as an as, as as expression. I'm saying to the CDC, hey, this is a better way, or at least it's a reasonable way you should consider. It was very peer reviewed science backed up. You know, this is, this is logical thinking at that time. Well, 2019, the medical board who were after my license said prove that the vaccine friendly plan is as safe as the CDC schedule. Thankfully, I hired an outside expert and I said, pull every patient born into my practice. Let's look at all health outcomes. And we published it. And that publication has just about like changed the world. This is what-
1: Paul, let me ask you though. I mean, like there's a lot of pediatricians that disagree with you. I mean, isn't this just anecdotal? Isn't this just anecdotal? Like what are we talking about? A couple hundred people here?
0: No. So this is the most
1: powerful real world data that's
0: ever been published from a single practice, single source. Real world data is way more powerful than epidemiological analyses that can manipulate the variables. We had matched 563 unvaccinated kids to age matched variably vaccinated kids. And we could look at the number of vaccines given compared to all the health outcomes. And what we got was striking increases in virtually all health problems that we looked at in the vaccinated and very little disease or problems in the unvaccinated. It wasn't zero and and we know that, but the problem with this study that kind of slapped me in the face and woke me up was these were vaccine friendly plan vaccinated. This was not CDC schedule. So, you know, for viewers who are on, who are looking at this online, those orange lines are vaccine friendly plan vaccinated and the blue are unvaccinated. You can see it's about a 400 to 600, 800% difference. And we were looking at asthma, allergies, autoimmune conditions, ADD, ADHD, behavioral problems uh, and infections. Here's the other thing. So you'll hear, well, you know, it's those unvaccinated kids who are causing all the infections and putting everybody at risk. Well, my data shows the opposite. The vaccinated kids are getting sick. So who's going to put that poor cancer kid at risk or the kid who unfortunately has immunocompromised, it's the vaccinated because they're the ones getting sick. Healthy people don't get other people sick. Mm. So that's the great lie that's been told is it's the unvaxxed who are the problem. We need to force them to vaccinate, right? The whole vaccine program is about forcing people to vaccinate or else their kids can't go to school. And there are several states. I think you're in California, are you?
1: I'm in Kentucky, but I'll do all of my training out in California.
0: Okay, you're in Kentucky. You are still you still have exemptions available to you. But I know in California, West Virginia, New York, Maine, uh, it used to be Mississippi, they just passed a law allowing a religious exemption. But those other states they don't have access to religious or philosophical exemptions and medical exemptions, which is the only thing they have available to them are effectively gone. If a doctor writes a medical exemption, they risk their license. And indeed countless doctors have lost their licenses, especially in California. Uh, so in those States, if you don't want to vaccinate or you want to go slower than the CDC schedule that's required for schools, then you'd have to homeschool or leave the state. I mean, that's a really terrible bind to put a family in who perhaps their livelihood is tied to a job in that state.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm just kind of pausing because when you, you know, what we've got here is we've got a medical publication industry that is a multi-billion dollar, you know, sort of, um, well, it's a multi-billion-dollar industry, financed in large part in 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 the same way that a lot of medical schools are, by the pharmaceutical company. You know, we have we have Marcia Engel, former editor of the New England Journal. We have uh, was it Richard Horton, former editor of the Lancet. And during COVID, these voices started to become amplified a little bit around the sort of limitations of the larger body of our quote evidence, right? At least from from you know, clinical trials and epidemiologic research. Um it kind of seems like you know when a study like this comes out like yours, it kind of seems like it's it 's David versus Goliath. What was the reception? I mean, how could somebody look at this who has a true scientific um, like if you to call yourself a scientist, you have to be willing to ask questions and be be willing to be wrong by right. whatever the rules are of your study and we 've already talked about how studies are are sort of developed with the intention of of, of supporting whatever the researcher or the corporation's internal bias is like what they would like to see the results are so um, you know I'll, I'll throw in John Giardini's work the illusion of evidence-based medicine I mean there's there's quite a bit of ghostwriting happening on, on on the on behalf of the journals by the industry so when a study like this is produced and you know it it, it You didn't even have to be biased. Like, here's just the raw data. Here it is right here. This is what it shows. What was the reception from your colleagues, from the boards, from, I don't know, your your big critics out there? So within five days of this being available online, I got a
0: call from my attorney and he said, Paul, the medical board had an emergency meeting and you are no longer licensed. It was an emergency suspension of my license because their claim was I was a threat to public health. So, and this has been going on for a long time. Anything that sheds a negative light on vaccines is caused, is called a threat to public health because you're going to reduce the population's trust in the program. It's not about the health of the population. It's about maintaining the vaccine program, which is all about profits. I mean, these are corporations making huge amounts of money. Secondly, I will add to your listeners, you can go look this up, it's it's right there, plain and simple. This study was retracted. So a single complaint, and this was a rigorously peer-reviewed study, a single complaint that falsely accused us of using a new technique that wasn't valid, right? And and they, the other complaint they threw in there was well, everybody knows unvaccinated parents don't come to healthcare visits. So, of course, it's going to look like the vaccinated have more problems. Well, we had addressed that in this paper.
1: That is such bullshit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just call it like it is. We had addressed it in the paper, but we also have now since uh, Jack Lyons Wheeler, my co author, teamed up with Russell Blaylock, pediatric ne- neurosurgeon and neurologist, and they re looked at the data, reanalyzed it, and proved that actually, the unvaxed parents m- made a higher percentage of their well child visits than the vaccinated completely disproved this
1: wow interesting
0: yeah very interesting and and i would have guessed that the population i was serving were well educated most of the unvaxed parents were more highly educated even than the un- than the ones taking more vaccines uh, you know you, you go down the, the the rabbit hole if you will of researching the real evidence that's out there on vaccines The more you look, the more you find, and vaccines don't look very good for you, right? Right. They're outright dangerous. So uh, they republished a study, and and the study they published looked at one additional factor, and this is important for your listeners to know. Parents always ask me, "Well, we've started the series, don't we need to finish?" Well, they answered that question by looking at my data, and they asked the question as follows: If a parent is following some schedule and then stops, how do the health outcomes compare to those parents who continue to vaccinate, even if it's on a slower schedule? What they found was those who stop vaccinating at any time, their kids do twice as well. Or in other words, if you continue to vaccinate, you're gonna have double the harm in all those areas we looked at.
1: Wow, wow.
0: Yeah, behavioral issues, ADD, ADHD, asthma, allergies, eczema, and various infections, ear infections, sinus infections, lung infections. You can stop vaccinating at any time and improve the health outcomes of your child.
1: Wow. And so is that because of the adjuvants? Is that because of these other ingredients more so than the, you know, viral particle or whatever? You're just getting less of a sort of adolescent accumulated uh, cumulative dose of, you know, not the aluminum, just the aluminum adjuvants, but I also want to ask you about polysorbate 80 and some of these others. Is it because of that? Is it because of these additives? So so there are plenty of studies that show
0: that chronic toxicity, you know, we have a low level toxin, but you keep getting it over and over and over again with multiple vaccines can add to increased health problems. We also know for sure you're absolutely spot on aluminum in in particular is a very dangerous adjuvant by itself. It causes most of the problems we see that come from vaccines. There's another mechanism called immune activation. So if in, in the, and actually I'm going to ask you about pregnancy and vaccines. But if in the early stages of brain development or the development of the immune system, which we know starts in pregnancy, but then it's still ongoing throughout childhood, especially in infancy, if you hammer the immune system and the developing neurological system with a lot of vaccines quickly, it's a cumulative or, or even more than a cumulative effect. So it's immune, you're activating the immune system and sometimes the immune system turns on itself. And and you get autoimmunity and you've, we've found antibodies against proteins in the brain. So no wonder there's inflammation in the brain, for example. And this can happen all over the body. We saw that with COVID, the COVID jab and the spike proteins getting all over the body and creating an immune response that's attacking various organs and wrecking havoc.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, you know, let's, let's take this a step further I, because, you know, like I said, Paul, I wasn't super invested in this because I was fighting fires across the whole pregnancy and childbirth, you know, spectrum. But then, bam, 2020, baby uh, Penelope Loose arrives. 2021, bam. Yeah, we got, we got busy real quick afterwards. Everly Rosa arrives at home. We didn't even get a birth certificate, let alone vaccines for Everly, but Penny did get a couple and she's, way ahead of her other of her of her peers. Like she's more agile. She's more balanced. She can use her fine and gross motor skills better than any other kids. Her vocabulary is exceptional. Now her mom and her dad, her mom is very smart. Her dad is, you know, he's he's keeping up. Um, you, you're talking about your own kids, right? Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, you know, maybe it's it's a part of, you know, the the sort of nature part of that. And and maybe we've done a great job of nurturing. But also we're eating organ meats and fish and, and like just very very nutritious diet we've got lots of outside time lots of sunlight like all of those things are relevant and we're, we're going to get into that because i know you, you've got this new coaching program that i think is probably going to be very helpful for people um in order to raise the healthiest most developmentally i don't know um intact kids that we can mm. but the um you know but my but my I I guess my my thought here is now that i have got little girls, they're immediately going to be presented, I think it's age 9 now, uh, with the opportunity to get, quote, protected from cervical cancer. And I know we're going to have a conversation later on your show about um, all sorts of things related to that. But one thing that was really, really scary to me is that there's an, an agent polysorbate 80 added to the vials of Gardasil 9. This is by Merck. Merck has just fucked us over and over and over again. So I'm not sure why we continue to entrust them with our health, but I digress. Um, they've got this polysorbate agent a- agent in there and that's an emulsifying agent. You can find it in like things like salad dressings and whatnot. So, When I look deeper, I realize that polysorbate 80 is not new to the pharmaceutical industry. They've added it to a variety of medications over the years in order to help it cross the blood brain barrier. Yep. So we've got a big fucking problem on our hands here. You're adding an aluminum adjuvant that we already know is toxic, even not crossing the blood brain barrier. And now we've added an agent for it to get across the blood brain barrier. Yeah. What the fuck? Like, what are we doing? Why are we adding aluminum first off? And why are we adding polysorbate secondly? Right. Hey guys, it's Nathan. Sorry for this brief interruption, but I got to tell you about a new offering that I'm going to be making available this fall. You've heard about the Born Free Method. That's our comprehensive pregnancy and postpartum program that's a includes 12 months of weekly calls 100 plus video modules tons of citations around pregnancy and postpartum well born free is an umbrella under which there's going to be a lot of other courses and the second course in this anthology is called clear and free your solution to persistent hpv it's a collaborative effort between me and mimi Linquist of the medicine podcast she um is a relative expert in, uh, I say relative because I don't consider anybody a full expert in anything, but Mimi has gone deep into human papillomavirus and some of the ways that we can use lifestyle to augment the immune system in hopes that your routine screening for HPV or your routine pap smears are gonna come up negative and clear so you can go another three to five years and not even think about it until your next um, appointment whereby hopefully you'll screen negative again. So the typical path that many women experience of all ages in their OBGYN clinic is, hey, you're due for a pap smear and we're gonna test for HPV as well. If one of those comes back abnormal, your OBGYN is gonna say, oh, darn it, it's abnormal. Why don't you come back for a repeat screening in six months or 12 months? And this process continues, right, until you end up with either a progression of abnormal cells in the cervix caught on pap smear or a persistence of human papillomavirus, meaning your body has not been able to integrate the message of this virus, right? Remember, viruses are not living things. So in the meantime, Your OBGYN or your midwife or nurse practitioner hasn't given you any tools in order to help support your immune system through diet, through movement, through sleep, through stress management, through hydration, through all of those modifiable lifestyle factors so that you can be sure that if you had an HPV um, positive screen initially, that the next time it's going to be negative. Mm -hmm. Now, the other part of that conversation, of course, is, hey, I got the HPV vaccine. Aren't I? safe now? Well, the problem with Gardasil 9, which is the primary vaccine that is offered to young men and women as early as age nine, has not been demonstrated to be either effective at preventing cervical cancer nor safe because of the aluminum adjuvants and everything else. So there's a lot of controversy around HPV and cervical cancer and even cervical cancer screening methods along with this vaccine. What do I do? Should I get it? Should I not get it? Should my little girls get this vaccine? And so Given the sort of swirling (laughs) pool of information and misinformation out there, I went deep as well. And Mimi and I teamed up in order to clarify for everybody out there the realities around what HPV and cervical cancer screening looks like, what can be done while you're waiting for your follow-ups in order to support your immune system to integrate the message of that virus and avoid any abnormal cells developing and hopefully avoid painful biopsies or even worse, LEAP procedures, cold knife comb procedures, and of course, worst case scenarios: cervical cancer. There's so much that's in your power. Your doctors, your practitioners probably aren't maybe educated or incentivized to share all of that information, but we're going to do that through this course, as well as all of the realities around vaccines, especially Gardasil 9. Um, We look at data from the United States and elsewhere in the world. We speak to um, attorneys who are litigating on this topic around Gardasil 9. What you can expect from the course is around 90 lessons self-guided. And we're gonna also offer monthly calls for six months after you enroll with me and Mimi, where we're gonna be able to answer all of your questions and provide you with that support that perhaps you aren't getting from the healthcare professionals that you've entrusted um, your, your cervical cancer screening and your well woman care. So we get into HPV, we get into cervical cancer screening, we get into the immune system, vaccines, viruses, it's everything you wanted to know about any of those topics. Go to the link in the show notes and you'll find your way to book an enrollment call and we'll get you enrolled right there. We're going to be enrolling in October. I hope to see you there.
0: Well, the vaccines that have aluminum in them would not work without an adequate adjuvant. And an adjuvant, just the term for those who aren't familiar with it, means that this boosts the immune response. So aluminum is so toxic to the body that our body, when it sees that at the injection site, just sends white blood cells, macrophages, macrophages like, get yeah. rid of this aluminum stuff. It's poison. Well, in the process, that alone is gobbled up transported around the body, including to the brain. And you're absolutely right. Polysorbate 80 is used for cancer drugs. If you need to target a tumor in the brain, the only way that they can get these cancer drugs across this blood brain barrier is to put in polysorbate 80. Uh So adding that to a childhood vaccine, first of all, it has no purpose. So why are they adding it? It There's no benefit to adding polysorbate 80. So there's something malicious going on. I'm sorry, I'm just calling it like I see it.
1: Yeah. Why else would we be putting this in there? Like it just, to me, um, I, I hate to say that as well. Right? Like I don't like to think I'm a, a conspiracy theorist or, but it's like, tell me why it's in there.
0: Yeah. And
1: and yeah. furthermore, is there not a better way to get a, a phagocytic response or a robust immune response without a very, very toxic um, aluminum adjuvant? Like I just, I, I, I'm kind of left sort of without words. It's like, yeah. unless I can, it, unless it can be demonstrated that it's That it's um, reasonably uh, uh, safe. And that word safe doesn't really work well for me. But let's say that it's at least minimally harmful in the long term. Then, like, let's not add it.
0: We would need better data. So, I think I can say honestly, and I, I imagine you feel similar, but you can correct me if you don't. I'm not anti vaccine, that is the theory of it. I mean, the theory is beautiful. You take a, you know, virus particle or a virus and you attenuate it, making it non-infectious really. And you allow it, let's just say, to stimulate your body to develop a lasting immune response so you don't have to go through the actual disease. I mean, my goodness, if you've got a super dangerous disease and you could create such a vaccine, we would line up. You wouldn't need mandates. You don't need mandates. You will have everybody lining up to get that protection. Sadly, no such vaccine exists. The ones that are on the market have all been brought to market with this fake placebo concept. They don't look at all health outcomes. They don't do long-term trials. And what we end up having is this growing schedule of toxic products being injected into our children. And parents, if you're listening, you've got to stop, pause, take a look at it before you do any more vaccines.
1: Dude, I, I feel exactly the same way. That's what people tell me. Like during COVID, I lost a lot of friends because I wasn't out there protesting every pregnant woman to get the vaccine. And i was like, listen, I don't have any safety data. How can I possibly provide informed consent? And they said, you're an anti-vaxxer. And I was like, no, I'm actually not against vaccines. I think it's a brilliant, whoever came up with the concept, whoever it was, uh, Jenner or whatever his name was, you know, back in like the late, late 19th century, this, this, this like variolation that we we brought in from East Asia. And it's like the idea of giving a small dose of poison, like Mithridates, the story of Mithridates, being afraid of being poisoned by some of his serfs or whatever, taking small amounts of arsenic or whatever it was back then in order to be able to tolerate a lethal dose of that stuff if somebody were to slip it into his tea. Brilliant. This is brilliant technology. However, for you listening, that is not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about... A, a, a um, an established benefit over harm. Nobody has demonstrated that in the safety data. And therefore, especially since the efficacy isn't really there based on your data or Merck's own safety data on Gardasil 9 as a means of preventing cervical cancer, which, by the way, they're about to be hit with about $100 million worth of lawsuits because of false advertising and a variety of other um, vaccine, vaccine injury reports that have come through. But um, I am not anti-vax. I can tell that you're not anti-vax. Dr. Yeah. Sue is not anti-vax. Yep. What we're what we're against is the release of a product under this sort of pseudoscientific facade that everything's fine. Just leave it to the CDC, the FDA, our medical publications, and these giant corporations who have failed us over and over and over again.
0: Yeah. So I want to actually uh, play devil's advocate for you a little bit. Just throw it back your way. I think the most important time for brain and immune system development is the time in the womb, you know, right from conception. In fact, preconception, you want the mother's body to be as detoxed as possible. I know this is the co- kind of coaching you do. Um, what happened with our OBGYNs who I used to think of as sort of brilliant doctors? Um, they've gone the way of the pediatricians where they've just sort of accepted ACOG's Sold out guidance is what I call it to to inject. First, it was the annual flu shot nonsense. Then they added the the, the Tdap, which was horrendous because that's an aluminum containing shot. And then of course now with COVID, an RSV two messenger RNA platform quote vaccines that have no real safety testing. What what do you say to all that?
1: You know, I think the OBGYNs are still the smartest doctors out there. I mean, I, I went into the field because I was seeing some really good medicine there. And once you then get through all of your training and you realize you're being nourished in order to just accept policies and procedures passed down by these oversight agencies, including the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, what, it, what occurred to me was because I was asking so many questions and getting punished for it, I realized, oh, shit, doctors of all specialties, have never been really incentivized to be critical thinkers. That's what happened. Yeah. You know, think about it the Harvard, MD, MPH, PhD, whatever, they have got all the credentials. The way that they got there, Paul, was not by asking questions and thinking outside the box. They got there as a reward, more and more education at more and more prestigious institutions because they were better at staying in the lines than me. Starting in kindergarten, I was not staying in the lines. I was out there playing, you know, with, you know, with my, you know, playing out there in the mud while everybody else was trying to like color in the letters of the alphabet. Like, yeah, I yeah. just wasn't and interested in a rebel learn. since you were a little kid. I was a total, probably a total, I was probably a hard kid to manage even in kindergarten. So, <laughs> uh, but that's not to say that I think doctors, including pediatricians or ob/gyns or any neurosurgeons, whatever. I don't think these are stupid people. But I think that they've actually been conditioned to believe that if they don't do these things, something bad is going to happen. Yeah. And yeah. when the individuals do these things, yes, we do get punished. I mean, you you're a living example of that. I've gone through my own, you know, issues with the system, um, including getting fired for taking my mask off during COVID, caring for an old dying guy, heart failure, ninety five. You know. Wow. Um, but the but the point is that I think that we all are so conditioned to outsource our power and fail to realize that you you invested a half a million dollars into your education you sacrificed your entire entire decade of your early adulthood if you and every one of your colleagues stood up and said we're not fucking doing this anymore the it would be a very very different story but instead it's i just don't want to step on the toes i got to pay my debt and, and like i just want to live like live you know keep up with the joneses that's not good enough for me it wasn't good enough for you and yeah. so here we are take some courage i guess so so I'm going to pivot from that. You
0: didn't quite answer the question completely of whether or not you would do any vaccines during pregnancy,
1: but because um, if if you can't say it on broadcast, that's okay. No, 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 no. I, I don't recommend any vaccines during pregnancy. Okay. Yes, sorry, I I may have just gotten caught up in the f- sort of poetic philosophy of it. But gotcha. yeah. So my mom was a certified nurse
0: midwife, and she taught lay midwives in the mid Ohio Valley how to do home births, and and did a lot of those. And I know you've been fairly involved in supporting midwives yourself. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, What I saw with our standard medical system, hospital medicine, if you will, moms come in to have babies in the hospital and you can probably speak to what percentage of us babies are born in hospitals. I imagine it's very high.
1: And 98%.
0: 98. Yeah. And they get thrown into this funnel, right? And the outcome of that, that I watched and I saw quality measures to reduce C-section rates, for example, They're still 30% or higher in most institutions.
1: Um, Yeah. Yeah. We're approaching 40% nationally, by the way. Oh, my gosh. Yeah.
0: And and so, briefly speak to the health outcomes of ending up going down that road instead of a a natural home birth.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, (laughs) we're going to be on, we're going to be talking on your show, you know, in a little bit here today. But what I will say is that it's hard to it's hard to isolate a a single thing that has been problematic in pregnancy because once you get on that medical train like you know it's like it's full bore ahead like no breaks like you're on that medical train and now we've intervened we've done this thing we've created this new problem we got to get more interventions and then you end up with that emergency c-section and somebody like me steps in and does a beautiful incision closure after an emergency c-section and everybody hails me as the as the hero so I don't think that it's just one isolated thing. I think when you add in, you know, a lot of synthetic medications, a lot of, I mean, starting with fertility, pumping you full of synthetic hormones without ever looking upstream at what was the reason that your body was struggling to carry a pregnancy in the first place. Yeah. So we start there. And then you end up with the vaccines. You end up with all of the fear-mongering. Like we're talking about the mind-body connection, the mental and emotional state of a woman who's in that system, who's not being seen or heard for more than 20 seconds during these routine prenatal visits. And meanwhile, looking with an ultrasound, we know that ultrasound potentially is harmful in the first trimester. You add all of this stuff up. And then we have all these reasons in the world to induce, you know, from the arrived trial to everything else. And we just find ourselves in a mess. It's like, How did we get here? Well, which of the hundred things that was done to you from the moment you got that positive pregnancy test and convinced you that now that you're pregnant, you have a disease process. Mm -hmm. Everything to follow is is what leads to the the issues that we're now seeing that probably is less than what your mom experienced when she was a CNM. But I'm not seeing any pregnancy who goes through the hospital as being the most healthy mom and baby thereafter. Yeah, Versus my wife who had a 90 minute labor in our bedroom. I mean like. (laughs) It was as that's, easy as that's as amazing. So, <laughs> yeah. out of curiosity, you know, you're an OBGYN.
0: so your standard C-section rate when you were practicing hospital medicine would probably be thirty percent or higher. Now that you've been supporting more natural processes, what what C-section rate do you get?
1: Less than five, consistently for yeah. finished residency. Less than five percent. All so of my you, clients have easy breezy births. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I imagine you screen out for super high risk so that they have to deliver in the hospital just for the safety reasons, probably.
1: Nope. Nope. I actually, my, my most recent was a uh, history of iatrogenic preterm C-section at 34 weeks for HELP syndrome, iatrogenic C-section, her second for severe preeclampsia at 35 weeks. She cleaned up her lifestyle. We got her dialed in on that. Her blood pressure after her third pregnancy, the birth, was 117 over 75. Um, no abnorm- abnormalities in labs, no hemorrhage, and the baby was a surprise breach, which we all did at home and she's just fine at home. I've got one coming up in two weeks, who's four prior C-sections. Whose baby, by the way, Paul, was injured at the six-month visit, the fourth baby she had. Perfect baby, six months,
0: Hmm.
1: got the the series, 72 hours later is paralyzed from the neck down, has a trach and a peg tube, and she is determined to not go back into the hospital. So we're gonna do a home birth. So I end up with a high-risk birth, and I still am getting a a low C-section rate. In fact, I haven't had a C-section yet in my practice. Since graduating, that, that's absolutely shocking. And if anybody's
0: listening, yeah. um, wow. I mean, you,
1: they, need, they need to get a hold of you. <laughs> well, I've so many requests now that I have to have build courses and programs because I can't possibly see every single person one on one. I highly encourage people to see people like your mother who does home birth, you know, out sure. of hospital home birth, find a midwife. They do this really, really well. Unless you can't find a midwife due to licensing restrictions and whatnot. Um I think that's the the right path because because you know in, in alignment with your work and your practice, a lot of people now, even if it's the minority, are starting to to realize that interventions beget more interventions, mm-hmm. and they end up not feeling all that good about their birth, even if they had a natural vaginal birth in the hospital. something yeah. didn't feel right, yeah. and it could have been that them having to fight with the peace people or whoever about vitamin K and rogam and and the hepatitis B and circumcision. And they're like, I don't want to be fighting yeah. every step of the way. Can I just have my baby and go home? Yeah. No, we're going to call CPS. Like what do you say about that? By the way, CPS, like people are really concerned about this.
0: You know, it's tragic what's happening. The hospital systems have sort of um, embraced the medical model to such an extent that if you don't follow the medical model, you're a negligent parent. It, yeah. it got so bad, we met a couple, uh, tragic story, uh, a baby at two months, uh, totally healthy, looking perfect, gets the two-month shots, and 36 hours later is dead. Okay, that's SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. We know, I've looked at all this data, there's several studies, several data sets, almost all the SIDS happens in the first week after the vaccine series. And it's not happening in the rest of the two months between that shot and the next shot. So it's clearly wow. cause an effect. Mm. That family, see, so Protective Services gets involved. Uh, the, the coroner calls it a um, smothering death, SIDS, instead of a vaccine injury death. Oh, yeah, of course. And so then they're charged with a crime. And in this case, thankfully, there was a vial of blood that they were able to test Six months later, they they got a hold of it, got a separate different pathologist to look at it. And the aluminum content was way above adult toxic levels. Wow. And this was drawn 36 hours after that baby got the shots and died. So that's a study I wish would be done, is let's look at aluminum levels one day, two day, three days, post-vaccine series, and see what's really happening to our children's brains. But the whole paradigm is set up to support a system that's actually causing harm and yeah so this is why parents don't want to go into the hospital if you have an unvaxxed child and I, I understand your second child is in that situation when you go into the hospital er if you should have to do that uh they're all the first questions always well is your child up to date on vaccines and talking with people who have experienced this you seem to be treated differently in the hospital by doctors if you yeah. vaccinated your kid
1: yeah yeah, right. right. And who wants that extra stress? It's already hard enough to have a newborn baby, and now these people are peppering you and shaming you for not getting these injections, right? right?
0: Yeah. there's
1: one thing I want to correct you on. unvaxed. I don't like the term. you can't unvax a kid, right? <laughs> so non <laughs> non. So, um, but actually that kind of one that that helps me bridge into the last thing I want to talk to you about. Um, first off, if you guys haven't um, checked out Paul's work, the vaccine-friendly plan co- co-authored—it's with, it's a longer title there—but the vaccine-friendly plan co-authored with Jennifer Margulis is a book. It's on my shelf back here somewhere, amidst all of the books I have. Um, an incredible resource. Uh, your Substack and your podcast are found at DoctorsAndScience.com, and um, your podcast is great. I've been on—I've been on the podcast. I think I'm going on in the in the near future here. Yes, you but, are. Uh, one last thing I wanted you to talk about is, is a new program that you're offering Kids First Forever with Didi, your, your co-pilot, your companion here. Can you talk a little bit about that to kind of wrap this conversation up? And I think we're going to just end up having to do another podcast interview at some point, because I just love talking to you. <laughs> I enjoy talking with you too. Well, when I lost my license three years ago,
0: um, I had time on my hands, so I started the show uh, it was against the wind it's now called with the wind and you can get that at doctorsandscience.com but I also knew that I wasn't done helping families and helping kids and and now that I was no longer licensed I was completely free to speak the total unabridged truth you know I mean here's the facts here's the data here's my take on it I don't diagnose or treat since I'm unlicensed I coach and I educate and so you can go to kidsfirstforever.com, the number four, and sign up for coaching. I coach a lot on the vaccine issue because sometimes you've got parents who are not sure about going none, or they're not sure how much they want to do and when to do it, or they need to catch up so they can get their kid into school. I mean, I've talked several families through that. There's, there are safer ways to catch up. And while I would not do any for my own kids if I was young enough to have kids today, uh, I understand there are some people who find themselves in such a bind economically that they have to send their kids to school. I can walk parents through how to do that as safely as possible, give you the tools you need to uh, get your exemptions if you're in a state where you allow, you're allow allowed exemptions. And then I can also coach on pretty much anything. I mean, pediatrics, it's, it's about coaching, really. I mean, there's once in a while you pull out your prescription pad and you write a totally. prescription. Yeah. Uh and then and then my um are
1: like a therapist as a pediatrician
0: <laughs> really right and then Didi Hoover who's been a lifelong wellness coach uh she coaches families who are going through emotional social spiritual trauma uh she's so gifted in that area so between the two of us we can pretty much cover anything
1: Yeah that's awesome Yeah so uh two two final little maybe the rapid fire I don't know but the first is if a this came up with COVID and the graphene and all this other stuff, like the shedding. People were thinking, oh my God, I, I, I made a mistake. I got this vaccine. Is there some way I can detox from this, right? And, and we get into detoxification and, and all of that you know, in future conversations in pregnancy because that is a big part of what I do before you get pregnant. Right. Um, a lot of my clients are saying, oh no, I got the COVID vaccine. Is there a way to detox before I get pregnant? So you yeah. use the word unvax, even though we can't take the vaccine away. Is there something you you do, a resource you do provide for people who maybe are worried about the amount of aluminum that is in their child or in their own bodies? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's another thing
0: I, I do individual coaching. I think, I mean, there are some general principles for detox. You You should, you know, eat organic, for example. I mean, we know glyphosate and pesticides and herbicides are terrible for your health. So wherever possible you eat organic, there's certain vitamin C and N-acetylcysteine, there, there are certain things that are just sort of naturally boost the body's ability to get rid of toxins. And then there might be specifics based on a person's situation, which is I'm sure why you do some coaching and I do coaching. So we can get the, that family's specifics and then guide them on what to do. Uh, but yes, detoxing is important. And the most important thing, and you alluded to it, is don't do the vaccine in the first place. Because you can't take, you cannot take it out. I mean, there are ways to get spike protein out. Uh, FLCCC.net is a great resource. Peter McCullough's got good stuff out there. There are others. Uh, but, you know, if if I was wanting to have a pregnant woman detox, I'm sending them to you, you know. And if, if, if you've got families who have kids and they're wondering, what do we do? Send them to me.
1: Yeah, you know, and what I'll, as a little caveat there is, that I'll say is that while you've got a baby developing in the womb, that is actually not a good time to do the detox. I recommend doing it before that because just like when you lose a ton of weight and all the fat cells start to shrink and dissolve, you get this re- this dump of stuff into the blood and you feel very sick afterwards. And it's because you've accumulated so much crap over your life. Now that you're you've lost that adipose tissue, you get this dumping. I think something similar, at least it's sort of a conjecture. But I always tell people, let's try to do the detoxification before. Like when you get that glimmer in your eye, you want to have kids. The detox is going to help have um, get pregnant. It's going to have you help a uh, have you uh, help have you um, help you have. Excuse me, a a relatively uncomplicated pregnancy if we do a bunch of other things. And yeah. then of course, your baby can yeah. be protected. So I'll just throw that in there as a caveat. That um, is a, well, that, I want to second that caveat. I knew one of my my
0: youngest son was very toxic. He wasn't developing his language. He was super delayed in several areas. And I did a test dose of DMSA. It's just a chelating agent to see how much toxins would dump. He went blank for a month. I mean, I like literally thought I had destroyed my kid's brain. And that speaks to that dumping effect. You know, when you mobilize toxins through a detox process, there's a re-exposure that takes place and you don't want to do that while you're pregnant.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally great. I'm glad we're on on board. But yes, otherwise, yeah, you send me your 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 couples that are soon to be pregnant. Pregnant, I'll, I'm sending people your way. Um, I'm glad that you have this 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 offer for people, Paul. Because I know a lot of people have been bummed out that you're one of the the most outspoken pediatricians, but also very thoughtful pediatricians out there. And I, for a period, that I couldn't send people your way because you weren't actually in practice. But now you're you've you've reworked it very intelligently. Um, one final thing, I, I know we're running out of time here, um, but one final thing is for people that are like, hell no, I'm not sticking a sharp needle. I'm not going to hold my kid down and have them stick a sharp needle. You know, that that look, my daughter giving me the look in my eyes as I held her down and then they hurt her. There was right. something about that. So a lot of people now are like, is there an alternative to, to vaccines? I've heard of, you know, using homeopathy, homeoprophylaxis. Are those options, do you think, are are they very viable? And where can people go to find that, that type of offer?
0: um so hemoprophylaxis using homeopathy in my opinion it's safe Uh, i've looked into it i believe it is helpful um you know it's not as rigorously studied as perhaps we would like to be able to like prove
1: but it's certainly
0: harmless and it might be helpful but the other thing really to understand is our natural immune systems are amazing especially when you're not loaded up with toxins so I think you focus on really you know good nutrition organic food variety of foods um and really staying away from toxins and then you have your best shot at staying healthy naturally i mean you don't really need
1: to do much yeah yeah Yeah, i I I think most people who are considering that are really worried about finding some way to get their kids in school without actually doing injections. But I'm, I'm I don't totally, think it
0: works for that. Honestly, I don't think it, it works for that. Uh, I have tried getting titers for measles, mumps, rubella after hemoprophylaxis. It, it never works. Interesting. So you're not going to be able to prove immunity, even though it's quite possible, there is some boost to the innate immune system that happens with homeopathy. Uh, I don't think it'll work for
1: proving it for schools. Well, does the presence of antibodies really prove that you're immune against anything? <laughs> well, that is the other great hoax.
0: Um, you know, antibodies is the last arm of defense when your body has actually failed to keep the infection out of the body. And then the the, the antibody system gets revved up going, oh my gosh, we're over, we get overrun with infection. Uh, most kids did not get serious COVID if, if COVID at all, because they're, First line of defense, their innate immune system kicked in and eradicated before it even took hold. So they may not it's even develop all.
1: Yeah, yeah, man. Thank you. I, I'm glad we finished with that because that's another thing where people are like, uh, you know, if you wanted to take that down an even deeper path, you could look at you know original antigenic sin, and it's like, okay, great, you get a robust immune response to that one strain of coronavirus or whatever now right. the rest of your immune system is struggling to fight off everything else because all of the resources are toward towards you know going towards making one antibody against one stick and strain that yeah. isn't even a thing anymore like it's yeah. mutated and it's gone but
0: yeah the, anyways the, the um, shifting of that of the uh anti- antibody um, antigens of the covid and flu too Has been so rapid that people who've taken the COVID jabs are actually in this thing called negative efficacy. I know you know about it, but after six or seven months, they're at greater risk of death, greater risk of hospitalization. It's a it's a lose lose lose
1: situation, honestly. Yeah.
0: And uh, so yeah, cut cut your losses and do what you can
1: to detox. Amen, Paul. Thank you so much, guys. Go check out With the Wind, Paul's podcast. Go check out Kids First Forever if you want to become a, a part of. Um, Paul and Didi's coaching practice, not medical practice. Um, Doctorsinscience.com, subscribe to Paul's Substack. People like Paul can't do this, guys, unless you support their work. Like go and and pay $5 per month, subscribe. Like, There's a lot here. Of course, go to Amazon. We'll put links to everything, Paul, including some of your papers in the podcast description and show notes, which is at BelovedHolistics.com. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Nathan Riley. You're amazing. So much for tuning in. Another amazing episode of the Holistic of a Joanne podcast. Under wraps. If you want to find me, Nathan Riley, I'm the host. I am an MD, I'm a fellow of ACOG, meaning I'm board certified OB I'm also a board certified hospice and palliative care physician. You can find all of my services and products at belovedholistics.com, including an online shop with discount codes for all of the brands that are at the top of their category from water and hydration to supplements to Um, (laughs) courses. I mean, there's so much there. So go check that out. I also offer private consultation. You can buy packages. I'm also, um, of course, the PRP Fertility Program is open to all comers. You can find all of that at BelovedHolistics.com. If you're a midwife and you need collaboration from a physician, I got you. Go to Beloved Holistics. You'll find everything there. If you guys are enjoying the podcast, please support the sponsors. If you haven't left a five-star review, please go do that. It really, really means a lot. And lastly, if something in this episode touched you, share it with somebody that you love. I'm sure that they're going to love it too. We'll see you next week right back here on the Holistic OBJN Podcast. Take care and do no harm. Take no shit. Bye-bye, everybody.